Okay, so we can get started on the questions now. I'll answer these to the best of my ability. <clears throat> during this retreat, we do metta meditation during the sits. During the other time, should we also be in metta or in mindfulness? Thank you. Well, I would say you can't have one without the other, i.e. that you can't do metta unmindfully. So in that regard, mindfulness is the prerequisite for the practice of metta. So if you find yourself becoming very distracted, it might be good to um, revert back for a time to something like mindfulness of the body or mindfulness of breathing, just to bring your attention back to the present moment, away from the past and the future and so on. And then having established that mindfulness, you can begin again to practice metta. Or also, if you feel the need, you can continue to practice mindfulness. You know, these two things aren't so separate as we can think of them to be. They're inextricably connected with each other. And so practicing mindfulness. If one is mindful, one is in the way cultivating metta already in that if we have really true perfect mindfulness, we're looking at experience without aversion, which implies no hatred. So if it, mindfulness is established, there's no room for hatred. It's only when there's holes in that, that hatred and anger start arising. Um, so it's really up to you. Although, again, the focus is on metta meditation, kind of an intensive course, as you will. But mindfulness is, you know, carefully tied up with that as well. So both practices are quite valid during the duration of this retreat. Does it disturb the meditation to visualize, I can't, I don't know if it says, to visualize making friends with the breath? I think that's what it said, making friends with the breath. Um, I don't know exactly what you mean by making friends with the breath. Uh, the breath isn't a being you can exactly be a friend with, but perhaps you're referring to the idea of um, infusing thoughts of goodwill throughout all your actions and all your experience, saying that breathing in, may all beings be well, breathing out, may all beings be well. And that's perfectly fine. In fact, I found it very helpful and kind of grounding to um, <clears throat> follow these kinds of words along with the breath. So in the in-breath is one word, the out-breath is another word, in another word, out another word, and so on. It's almost like a, I guess you say a mix of mindfulness of breathing and metta meditation, but I've, I've found that very grounding when I try it like that. So um, yeah, I encourage you to try that out and see if that works for you. How do you not eat for pleasure? <laughs> It's not easy all the time when the food's so good. The basic idea is um, going back to Santindrio, sense restraint, having peaceful faculties. <clears throat> when we, we can look at any sense experience in one of two ways, either mindfully or unmindfully, restrained or unrestrained. When we look at things in an unrestrained way, as I said, we focus in on the signs and features we find agreeable. So for example, let's say the, uh, you had some of that cake today. You look at it unmindfully and you just start visualizing the, the taste of the cake and you say, oh, very moist, chocolate, raspberry, whatever. I like it, I want it, I'm gonna enjoy this. And so your mind gets caught up in these things. But on the other hand, there's also the option there's also the possibility that we can look at this in a different way, seeing that when we see the object, we say, dependent on sense contact, there arises a pleasant mental feeling. This pleasant mental feeling is impermanent. And the same thing when we're tasting it. This taste has arisen dependent on a contact with a sense object, and a feeling has arisen because of that, and that too is impermanent. Seeing the impermanence in all of this, in a more um, 
what's the word I want to use, um, direct sense. Some of the contemplations we also do is visualizing. You know, we have this idea of food being very this very pleasant thing. You know, it's all in these nice dishes and presented very nicely. But pretty soon after you put it in your mouth, it's suddenly not so agreeable. You know, let's say I take a slice of cake and give it a few chews, spit it out and give it back to you. I'm, I'm just helping you digest it. No big deal. I'm just trying to help you out here. It's like a, a bird feeding its babies, like that. But you don't like that. People, I don't think any of you like that. And so there's this idea that this food is so pleasant, but when it gets used up by the body, it becomes very unattractive, not pleasant, all the way from going down the esophagus, being uh, digested in the stomach, absorbed in the small intestines, excreted, and so on, out the other end, and so on. You can, you can think about that whole process, and it's a very good way of becoming disenchanted with all this, these foods that we get so enmeshed and enraptured with. So these are, these are two ways that we you know, eat without pleasure. And the idea behind it is, again, not to indulge in sense pleasures, to um, renounce sensual pleasures and the chasing after those things in order that we can cultivate a higher pleasure, a supreme pleasure, the pleasure of meditation, the pleasure of jhana, the pleasure of metta, what have you. So that's the reason and some of the methodologies for that. Often we dislike people immediately for no apparent reason. How do we work with those feelings? Well, <clears throat> I would say, you know, look at the perceptions that you're having of this person. You have, you see something in the person that you find disagreeable. And you know, the Buddha compares our perceptions to mirages in that oftentimes they can appear in one way, but when we look closely, things actually turn out to be a different way. They're very, our perceptions of the world are very fleeting like that. And so ask, I would ask yourself the question, you know, why is this feeling arisen? Is there any good cause or good reason for it? There might generally be some good reason for you to do this. I don't know, the person um, is doing something that is not agreeable to you. They're doing something unskillful. But if it's just a normal person, then you can, you know, look at why you're judging them like that. Is it their appearance? Do you say, oh, they look at they have all those tattoos, they can't be a good person. And you can look at that perception and say, well, that's not necessarily true. Many people with tattoos are very good people. That doesn't mean anything. And so just, I would say, don't take your perceptions too seriously. Really question them whenever they arise, especially those ones that give rise to unpleasant feelings see how it is, how those perceptions affect the mind, and really work on disidentifying with those perceptions. You don't have to take them seriously. They're just things that arise dependent on our habitual conditioning and sense contact. And hence, they're conditioned things just like anything else in our experience. They're things that aren't necessarily um, reliable as a measure of, of identifying the world. Can you please explain the concept of selflessness? How do I apply this concept in my everyday life? So you're, you're referring to the <coughs> teaching on anatta, and I don't like the translation selflessness or no self. I prefer not self in that this is not some kind of ontological suggestion, or no, it's not just a statement. It's not an ontological statement so much as it is a training of seeing things differently. So long as we believe in a self, I mean, a matter of speaking, we have selfhood, as it were. I don't mean that in the capital S self kind of way, but there's the idea of self. And so what the Buddha encourages us to do is to see things instead of as being self, see them instead as not self. And the reason for this becomes clear in one simile the Buddha gives. He's um, speaking to his monks, and he says, what do you think, monks, if the um, leaves in this forest that we're dwelling in caught fire? Would you be um, disturbed, or would you be suffering because of that? And they say, no, because those leaves on those trees are not us, they're not me. 
And then he turns it around and says, what if you were on fire? What if your hair was on fire, your robe was on fire? And then they say, yes, we'd be very upset about that. And the distinction there is that the monks took this body as theirs, as their self, my body. When we practice disidentification with these kinds of things, it doesn't leave any room for suffering because whenever we take something as mine, we're inextricably emotionally caught up in it. When we disidentify it, we just see that these things are merely phenomena arisen dependent on other things. It's like a, um, an assembly line. One part of the assembly line bring, goes to another part and you don't get, you don't get upset or um, sorrow when something in the assembly machine um, line changes. You just see that it's a process has changed. And so the same thing with this teaching on not-self. And this is something we have to, can't see necessarily see directly. We have to kind of use an indirect method, which is why the Buddha harps so much on impermanence. When we see that something is impermanent, we see that it's not worth clinging to, that it's not satisfactory, that it won't give us lasting happiness and peace if we cling to it. And so resolving in such a way, we resolve to take that thing as not me, not mine, not myself to disidentify with it so that when it changes, we won't find ourselves subject to suffering, subject to dukkha when that inevitably happens. It's our attachment to impermanent things and our identification with them, our um, taking them to be me, mine, and myself, that is the, the very root cause of suffering. This clinging to the idea of I am a self, the world is mine, the world is for me, and so on. How do you apply this concept in my everyday life? I would say the most important thing to do is reflect on the impermanence of all the things in your life. Seeing the impermanence, you can resolve yourself to not take those things, not cling, the, not cling to those things. And as you slowly eat away at the positive identifications of selfhood, you know, I am a teacher, I, am, I do this, I do that, I have such and such friends and relatives and I have these things and so on. These are all things that feed into our sense of self, giving it um, food to nourish it. As we slowly see the impermanence in all those things, all of our little societal roles, all of our material positions, all of our relationships, we chip away at, our, at this sense of me, mine, myself, over time as we reflect on the impermanence of these things. So I would say that would be the most pragmatic way to go about implying everyday life. Just anything you find yourself clinging to and craving, reflect that it is impermanent, that it won't last, and eventually you'll have to depart from that at some point or another. are one of the purposes of metta to attain jhana. Yes, that's definitely one thing that metta meditation can be used for. <clears throat> metta meditation, as I mentioned, is very good at giving rise to tranquility and happiness in the mind. And when the mind is tranquil, the mind can easily become concentrated. And this concentration specifically refers to jhanic quality concentration, the concentration we find in the jhanas. And so in that regard, metta and all the other brahma-viharas can be very accessible gateways to um, jhana practice. And in fact, if you read Bhanteji's book, Beyond Mindfulness in Plain English, about the jhanas, he starts, I think, the, one of the earliest chapters is on metta, even before he starts talking anything about jhana. I th that's the way he kind of teaches. And you'll find that, ironically enough, on almost every retreat that he conducts, his guided meditations are almost every time 50% about metta, about compassion, because he puts such a strong emphasis on that as a, a vehicle for concentrating and calming the mind. So yes, that's definitely one very strong purpose and one effect that metta meditation can have. When we say, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, am I supposed to feel happy? 
What if I don't feel happy? Is it important for me to feel happy to give metta to others? How do I get to the place of happiness in my heart to send metta to others? <clears throat> Optimally, the reason that we give metta to ourselves is, I don't think happy is a good word. It's one of those words that's used so often, it starts losing meaning. But when we practice metta, it's supposed to give rise to pleasant feelings, feelings of uh, meditative joy or piti. <clears throat> so the reason that we begin by giving metta to ourselves is, as you said, because it's quite hard for us to wish well-being for others if we ourselves don't have any wellness. And by wellness, I mean wellness in accord with the Dhamma, not having lots of stuff, nothing like that, but rather a stability of mind, a contentedness about us. What if I don't feel happy? Well, you can forgive yourself for not feeling happy. That's okay. You know, these things, um, other factors sometimes come into play. You may have something else going on in your life that makes it difficult to feel that way at that moment in time. Or you might be just simply distracted from what you're doing. But realize that dwelling on your sadness or despair is not pragmatic. It doesn't get you anywhere. This Dhamma, we progress in the Dhamma when we have meditative joy. That's joy that comes from meditation. And so harping on this contractedness, this darkness of mind, it doesn't lead us forward in the practice. And so when you, when you say, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, we can reflect on this. And by doing so, resolve to overcome that feeling, that, feel, that painful feeling we may have. If you have a neutral feeling, that's perfectly fine. Wellness can be a neutral thing, but I'm referring specifically here to any painful feelings you may have when you make this aspiration. And I think that answers the rest of the questions, how to get the place of happiness in my heart is inventive to others. Just realize that being your happiness is very pragmatic for yourself and others. And by reflecting in that way, you'll often find that those feelings of negativity simply disappear because you see that they're not worth anything. They're not worth clinging to like that. <clears throat> How does one develop love as in Kalyanamitta on the spiritual path without attachment? Can there be a healthy attachment in this practice? Well, I'll answer the second question first, which is no. There's no such thing as a healthy attachment in the most ultimate sense. However, there is the idea of, you know, one could say that by being attached to the Dhamma, one can use the Dhamma to overcome attachment. There's one sutta where the Venerable Ananda, he mentions that craving can be overcome by craving, i.e. that one craves for the end of craving and one may just well get their wish and hence they have no more craving. And so that can happen. There's a very famous simile called the simile of the raft where the Buddha says that just as a raft is only used for crossing a river and then left aside, so too the Dhamma is used to cross over the flood of samsara, to cross over away from dukkha. And then it's not, even the Dhamma is not to be attached to. But while you're crossing the river, you should hold on to that raft very tightly for dear life. Otherwise, you're going to fall off into the river and get swept who knows where. And you don't want to do that. And so in that regard, there can be skillful desire, skillful craving in that kind of way. But in the most ultimate sense of things, this is to be abandoned, but we shouldn't jump ship too early. But as for people, people are sometimes often a different story. It's generally never a good idea to be attached to people because they're extremely impermanent and attaching to people doesn't lead to the end of suffering. And so with regards to loving kindness towards Kalyanamittas, 
I also don't like the word loving kindness. It has some unfortunate connotations of this idea of attachment. I prefer benevolent goodwill, this idea of having goodwill towards a person, benevolently, generously. But anyway, you can develop goodwill for those who are dear to you, but it has to be tempered by reflections on impermanence. You know, when we practice metta or any of the Brahma Viharas, we're kind of working on this scale. On one extreme of the scale, we have hatred and aversion. On another end of the scale, we have attachment and craving. And so, depending on where we find ourselves with regards to a specific person, we can take the steps to make some changes. So if we're on the hatred side, we use the metta and the brahma-viharas to bring us back to the center. And the same thing goes if we find ourselves attached to those people. If we've overstepped our metta in that way and develop attachment, then we reflect on how that person is impermanent. Their life is impermanent. Our contact with them is impermanent. All these various things are impermanent about them. And so the, the goal then is to have this balanced and centered kind of attitude towards people, i.e. that we can have goodwill towards them, yet at the same time we don't want to let that goodwill slip on over into attachment. And so the same thing goes with spiritual friends or noble friends. We appreciate what they do. We rejoice when they rejoice, we rejoice in their successes, and we feel compassion for them when they're suffering, and we have a general attitude of goodwill towards them, and we appreciate the criticisms and critiques and the help they give us. Yet at the same time, we recognize that A, a friend can only do so much. In this Dhamma, it has to be done for oneself. And also that that friend's impermanent. They're going to leave one day, go elsewhere, they might get sick and die. They might just make an argument with them and not speak to them anymore. All these things can happen. And so anytime we develop metta, especially when it's with specific people, we have to always have in mind as well the impermanence of those people, the impermanence of the contact with them, and so on and so forth. Over the years, I've struggled with metta practice. Sometimes I feel it sincerely. Sometimes I do not feel it. Do you have any suggestions for when we are saying the words but not feeling metta during our practice? <clears throat> well, I sincerely empathize with you, and even I sometimes feel, fall into that kind of trap, this idea of people suck and I hate them and I just want to go live in a cave all alone for the rest of my life kind of attitude. But that's just aversion, and that's not a healthy attitude either. So, when you're really not feeling the metta practice, when you're not able to put a lot of zeal and energy into it, it's important, as I mentioned, to put weights behind the words, meaning reflecting on why you're doing this practice. Reflect on the benefits that it will bring to you, that you'll be peaceful, that you'll be contented, that you'll feel joy, and then that you'll have better interactions with those who are close to you, you'll have better interactions with those who you haven't met yet, and you'll be able to withstand any kinds of hostile or abusive actions or speech. And when we reflect on all these benefits, uh, there's also the uh, Bhante Silananda went into the 11 benefits of metta meditation, that sutta, which goes into all those different things. So those two can be incorporated in this, this idea of why we practice. And when we really have the weight of why behind our words, that's when joy opens up. That's when the practice really can open up. And so if you're, if we, when we feel not into the practice, and this goes for any kind of meditation, no matter what we do, it's very easy to get bored with mindfulness of breathing or not feel like doing that or anything like that. And the same way, we can reflect on the benefits and the reasons for doing that all the various ones that we may have. These are you know, deeply personal things, reasons why we come into this practice, come and do retreats in this practice, and so on. So reflect on, when we reflect on that, that's when zeal arises. That's when we can start opening up that practice in that way. I think we have to take the pencils out of the Sangha Hall. These are really hard to read. <laughs> If done correctly, can loving friendliness meditation counteract 
feelings of loneliness. I'm not, necess I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. You know, when we think of a feeling of loneliness, we can analyze why we feel lonely. Because we have a craving, a craving for company. But what we don't realize when we feel loneliness is that we're always alone. We're alone with others, as it were, because we always have our own subjective experience that can only be shared through words. We can't, I can't go to you and share my exact experience with you, the, the kind of non-verbal experience that I have. And so in that regard, we're always alone. There is no such thing as company in the most ultimate sense of things. We have people, other people who arise in our experience, but we can't incorporate them into our experience. The Dhamma doesn't teach this idea of all is one interconnectedness, anything like that. And so we can see then that we can analyze those feelings of loneliness. Why do I feel the need for company? I certainly don't need company to practice the Dhamma, to practice meditation. Those things aren't 100% necessary. They can be helpful, but not 100% necessary. And so I'd say the better way of dealing with feelings of loneliness is looking at them with wisdom and understanding. Um, I suppose, the, I suppose one could say that the joy that arises from metta meditation could not so much directly counteract these things, but kind of put them to the side for a time being, i.e. that <clears throat> when one gives rise to meditative joy, these kinds of feelings of wanting to be with others generally subside because the meditative joy is much more interesting than other people. Um, <laughs> I just realized how I said that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but in the most ultimate sense, these things still need to be confronted with wisdom, seeing why it is that these cravings for company are not skillful, that they don't lead us to our own contentment. When we are extending metta outwards to other beings, should we be focusing more on the object which, to which we are sending metta, or on the feeling of metta within our own bodies? That's a very good question. As far as I understand it, we generally start with a focus on the object of our metta, whether that be one's own self, one's body, one's sense of self, or on another being, or when we say all beings, we can have this kind of abstract mental um, idea of all beings, or even the idea of, you know, the the universe, whatever kind of expansive imagery you want to use like that. But as the feelings of joy arise in the meditation, we want to really try and stabilize those. We want the intentions of metta to become almost somewhat in the background, as it were, to keep them going on their own momentum. And then at that time, we can shift our focus to the feelings that arise from the metta meditation, that meditative joy that arises. And as we focus on that joy, whilst all the while still continuing to emit metta, <clears throat> we can also manipulate those feelings. We can see where the feeling arises most strongly in our body, and we can have it uh, spread it throughout the rest of our body. The Buddha compares this to like kneading uh, soap in a bath. You kind of agitate the water and get the soap all around the bath so that's pervading the entirety of the bath water. And so we can do the same thing with this joy that arises from, from metta, these pleasant feelings. We can have them encompass the entirety of one's body and um, we can keep our focus on them. And that's, that's the, really the way that one transitions metta into a jhana. Because the first jhana, it has piti sukha as factors. That's joy and rapture, these things. And so as we develop them, those things in our metta meditation, we use that then to transition that into jhana by really focusing on the rapture and joy and letting it really basking in it, as it were letting it envelop us in a figurative way of speaking. And as the mind becomes more and more tranquil and tranquil as we continue paying attention in that way, then 
the, um, the state of the first jhana will naturally arise as we continue to remove hindrances and continue to seclude ourselves from grasping at sense experience. This kind of state can arise naturally in the mind like that. What is the significance of not eating afternoon? Well, the, the reason that monks do it comes from the Buddhist time where <clears throat> monks would go and travel into villages and cities to receive alms from people. And the Buddha didn't want the monks going out at night because people could confuse them for burglars and robbers and, you know, there's all kinds of sketchy characters out at night. It's dangerous in some parts of cities and towns like that. And so there was that reason. But also the Buddha says that it's for one's own health. He says that eating once or twice a day is a healthy way of living. And you can see this somewhat in some modern research. They call it like intermittent fasting, where you you know, eat within a window of maybe four to six hours and then you fast the rest of the time. They say that it's real, that's very good for um, one's metabolism and also um, removing extra fat deposits and things like that. So take that as you will. <laughs> um, but also, the, I think the most important reason is that, you know, when we do our meals here, it takes a lot of time. You have to go and sit, you have to say the puja, you have to go get the food, you have to sit down, you have to chant some more, you have to eat the food, and that takes time. You have to clean your bowl. So much time. Now imagine you have to do that like three times a day, or four times a day, and then think of poor Karuna who has to cook three meals a day, and he'll go crazy. So eating at fewer intervals throughout the day gives us more time for Dhamma work whether it be studies or meditation or whatever like that. It just frees up that little bit of extra time that can be very helpful, which is why you don't see me at breakfast. I like to use that time for other things like uh, reading and memorization and stuff like that, just because it's not out of some austerity or anything. I just like having the extra time. I'll be frankly honest with you there. As important as metta is, can or should it be a primary practice? Or does it merely support all other practices such as anapanasati? I would say that metta can definitely be one's primary practice. But there is a caveat to that, in that <clears throat> at some point, as Bhante Sila will probably talk about on the last day, one has to kind of take a step back from even the practicing and the cultivation of these Brahma-viharas and start looking at that state with wisdom. In fact, you can do that while you're doing the practice as well. You can reflect on the fact that, you know, all of this, the feelings that arise from this practice are very intentional. They arise because of strong intentions. When those intentions cease, the pleasant feelings gradually subside as well. And so the deliverance of mind through these things is also impermanent. This is um, expounded upon in a sutta called the, um, I'm forgetting the Pali, but the doors to the deathless sutta, that one looks at the states that arise in metta meditation or any of the other Brahma-vihara meditations and see that these things are impermanent and conditioned and they resolve themselves to attain the unconditioned, going beyond that. So in a similar way as to the way that it works with jhana, these meditations provide a strong basis for analyzing experience in these ways so as to see their characteristics and to see the Four Noble Truths within them. So in that regard, metta can be said to be a primary practice, but it also has to be go beyond the idea of merely... Um, generating the metta itself, but also analyzing those states with wisdom, seeing the three characteristics within anything that arises within there. <clears throat> so this is just someone who wanted to share a comment. Um, this is a comment on living in an upright fashion. If you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember stuff. This is liberating. <laughs> Frees the mind from the past, allows presence. 
Well, I think you still have to remember things, even if you tell the truth. You have to remember what truth you told people, after all. You have to remember where you're going and all that. But I think what you're referring to is this idea that when we start, make, when we start lying, there's a web that's created. We have to keep the story straight with multiple people. You know, I can't tell Sally one story and tell Mark the other story, and then the stories get confused, and Sally and Mark talk to each other and find that I'm a fraud and all these different things. And so in that regard, it's true. When we're, when we're always speak honestly, then there's no need for any of this. As one famous, I think he was Irish or Scottish, I forget, poet said, we, oh, what tangled webs we weave when we lie to deceive or something along those lines. And so that's very true. We can see that in our own experience as well, all these webs that we can weave when we start trying to get things from people and start trying to deceive and uh, commit fraud like that. So telling the truth, although it's not always the most convenient thing to do, it's not always the most easy thing to do, in the long term, it's always the most skillful thing to do. That's a guarantee. At my home practice, I find myself repeating sentences according to what I believe I might be needing. Example, may I be confident, energized, motivated, etc. Uh, first question is, is this part of metta? Um, in a way of speaking, one could <coughs> rationalize it like that, i.e. that if I am energized and motivated, then I will be more likely to be happy and peaceful. <clears throat> but I don't know if I'd call those aspirations directly metta. And I'd say it's perfectly fine to make these aspirations for oneself, especially if they are pragmatic, if they actually work for you. You know, you can sit down and say, may I be concentrated and calm? May I be energized and focused? Of course, just don't get attached to the fact that you may make all the aspirations in the world and they may not work. But nevertheless, sometimes it can be a pragmatic thing to do. Does this cause too much identification with self? Well, you know, one of the things we always have to real recognize as unenlightened beings is that no matter how much we say, I have no self, I have no self, I have no self, nevertheless, we are dealing with subjectivity. We are dealing with self. That's why the Buddha doesn't make claims about there is a self, there is no self. In fact, he, he doesn't answer either of those questions. Because if I say, there is no self, I'm like, oh, there is no self, this is my truth, I know the truth, I know the truth, I have no self. You can see the problems that arise there. Not self is a training a practice, not some doctrine or theory, nothing like that. And so, when we say these things, like, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, some people say, oh, well, metta practice is inferior because it has the idea of I in there, and it's conceited and stuff. But fundamentally, we have to start working with our sense of self in order to remove this sense of self. No matter how much we may believe that we do not have selves, disidentification comes not through believing, but through seeing. There's a, a difference there. And so in that regard, I don't think these things have the problem of identifying with self. The problem of identifying with self is because we see things as permanent and pleasurable, not because we use the word I. Even the Buddha, who was you know, fully enlightened, he used these conventional terms out of you know, ease. He said, before my enlightenment, you know, he said my, he said you, he said we, he used these pronouns. And that's perfectly fine, just as, we realize, as long as we realize that in the most ultimate sense, this idea of self is something to be transcended. How can we work with metta when there is a lot of pain in the body and or negativity in the mind? <clears throat> well, with regards to pain, you can continue, in that case, to extend metta to oneself. You know, there, just because there's bodily pain doesn't mean there has to be mental suffering. Those two things are quite distinct. And this is, one, again, one of the benefits of the teaching on not-self. 
if the body if we see the body as not self then any pain that we have we just see it as something that arises because of the nature of the body not my pain there's a subtle shift there like that and so you can do that as for negativity in the mind well i think the practice of metta is a very good direct counter to that negativity in the mind if we have negativity regarding ourself then giving metta towards ourself counteracts that. If we have negativity towards other people, then giving metta towards them counteracts that. The question, of course, is which one's going to win out? Is the metta going to win out, or is the negativity going to win out? And that comes from your zeal, the zeal in the practice. Whatever um, has more momentum behind is the one that's going to come out. And the way that we manipulate those momentums is, again, by seeing the reasons and benefits for the practice and seeing the dangers and downfalls in negative states of mind, seeing how those things are suffering here and now, how they keep us enmeshed in suffering, how they don't lead to the end of suffering, whereas feelings and intentions of metta do the opposite. They lead to the end of suffering, and they're pleasant here and now. And so in that way, we can overcome those things. How to deal with pain from injury while practicing metta or other meditation? Well, my answer here is largely the same, except there's a caveat that, you know, if you have an injury in your knee or your back or something, I don't know your body like you do. You have to be careful not to, you know, exacerbate that injury. There's a fine line between pain that's just stiffness and pain that means something's not right right now. And that's something only you, with your knowledge of your own injury, can make a determination of. But I'd say, let's say if you have an injury in your knees and you start to feel a very significant pain in your knees, then you should definitely address that by changing your position. You don't want to exacerbate that injury any further. <clears throat> During meditation in my Sangha group, 90% of the time when my mind is somewhat still, I get an overwhelming pressure or blockage in my throat. Then I begin to tear up. I am not thinking of sad or other events, but cannot seem to stop the abundance of tears. Is this taking away from my meditation, and what can I do to work with it? I'm not exactly sure what's going on. I've never experienced this myself. <clears throat> but I wonder if it's possible that this is just some kind of physical reaction to a mental feeling. And if that is the case, then you can just continue to observe that, seeing that, oh, this body has, a state has changed within my body, whether it be this blockage in the throat or tears and you know you can very closely analyze your mind saying you know is there any actual sadness is there reason for the tears are they tears of joy i don't know um i can't say it's taking away from your meditation that's kind of an odd way of ex describing something i don't know how you take something away from meditation so long as you're mindful and experiencing things mindfully then there is meditation there's nothing way to take away from that as to how to work with it well, the catch-all advice we always give when we don't know what to do is just look at it with mindfulness. That's never a bad response to do, but I, I don't have a you know, particularly specific answer for you on that one. So we have about 15 minutes left. If anyone wants to <clears throat> ask questions, we can open the floor for a little while. Yes? Well, one of the reasons that <clears throat> we have the four Brahmaviharas, that's metta, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, is that these things work to balance each other out. And so when we cultivate compassion, if that compassion extends to our own suffering, that's not practicing properly. When we have this compassion, it has to be a compassion that sees the suffering in others 
yet at the same time realizes that it's not skillful for us to get caught up in that suffering ourselves. And the, the way that we can prevent that from happening is, I think I mentioned this in my talk, just recognizing that in the most ultimate sense of things, beings are responsible for their own happiness. It's their states of mind that in the most ultimate sense of things cause them suffering. So even that animal, you know, it's you know, injured or something, it's suffering because it has craving. It craves to continue living. It craves to not feel pain. That doesn't mean you can just, you just, sit, just sit there and watch the poor thing writhe in pain. If you can do something about it, by all means, that's good. But you really have to be very careful not to let the suffering of another being cause you suffering as well, because that's just not pragmatic. It doesn't, it doesn't help you, it doesn't help them. Your suffering doesn't help that being that's suffering. In fact, it may well make things worse because you can't think clearly about how to help them in that, um, at that time. For better or for worse, that's just the nature of samsaric existence. Beings will suffer so long as they are bound in samsara. And there's no way, there's no possible way that we could end the suffering of all beings. I don't know how many beings there are, and beings have to end suffering for themselves. And so the best thing that we can do is resolve to end suffering for ourselves. And by doing so, then we can also instruct others how to end suffering for themselves. And hopefully they take on that advice. So I hope that helped. Anyone else have anything? Yes. Well, you know, with the animals, they can't really help it. That's just their instinct. That's their, their conditioning. The Buddha says that one of the biggest issues of the animal realm is that there's no merit and demerit. There's only bestial instinct. And so, you know, when even our cats, they catch and kill a mouse, we don't get angry at them. Like, how dare you break the precepts? That's just what cats do. You can't help that. As for people, that's a bit makes things a bit more complicated because people do have that choice. You know, one of the things that we can reflect on is that we can see the unskillful habits in others and really reflect on the suffering they have <clears throat> or the suffering that they'll experience because of the karmic retributions of that. We can see because so-and-so kills so many beings, there's going to be a great deal of suffering for them. And from that, we can extend compassion for them, compassion at the, the suffering they may be having because they're killing or because that they will eventually experience when they reap the result of their actions. And so this is one of the great pragmatic effects of, the theory, of, the, of karma, that it really does help us to cultivate compassion in these kinds of difficult circumstances. In that way, it's a very pragmatic teaching, as well as being a, you know, a, a doctrinal position. Um, but you can also just reflect that, you know, at any time, no matter what a being is doing, they're operating under a certain logic, i.e. that they're attempting to gain pleasure and avoid pain. It's just that unfortunately, some beings go about that in the totally wrong ways. For example, the butcher kills living beings because he wants to have a livelihood so that he can enjoy sensual pleasures. So that's his logic of killing the animals. I'm killing these animals so I can live a happy life. Unfortunately, he doesn't see the effects and the, the downfalls of, that his practice has. And so in that regard, we can give them this wish, this hope that they start to see the unskillful effects of their actions and really cultivate that hope and wish for them that they see the unskillful effects of their actions and adopt more skillful ones. But for better or for worse, that might not happen which is why equanimity is also important, realizing that, you know, it's not, it's just, it's not skillful to, um, you know, go round up the butchers and kill them too, saying, how dare you kill beings? I'm going to kill you because you kill beings. You don't want to go into that extreme either. There always has to be these, these divine abodes with regards to any being like that. 
So I hope did that did answer the question. Best I could anyway. It's a difficult topic. Yes. In general, metta is kind of the starting point of compassion. It's this feeling of general <coughs> goodwill and friendliness indiscriminately towards all beings, whereas compassion is generally more specifically given towards beings who are, in a matter of speaking, lower. What I mean by that is that beings who are subject to more suffering than we are. You know, we don't feel, we don't feel compassion for someone who is, you know, um, that's not the right way of putting it. We don't, we don't so much develop compassion towards someone who is more successful than us so much as we cultivate mudita, sympathetic joy. But compassion has this idea of looking at the suffering of others and empathizing with that suffering, but not in a way, as we mentioned a few questions ago, that goes into suffering ourselves. And so it's kind of like saying that metta is, it's all around, it's towards all beings indiscriminately, whereas compassion and mudita, while they are towards all beings, they also have specific pragmatic purposes that we can develop compassion for suffering beings, we can develop mudita for successful beings and equanimity for all of them and so on like that. You have something? The caveat, I guess I want to say, is that I haven't quite gotten there myself, so these are all speculations on my part from my, my own practice of what I think should be done, but it could be wrong. Um, <clears throat> as for the whole idea of nimitta, you know, some people say there is no such thing, that it's a misinterpretation of a certain sutta regarding a simile of the moon. Other people put very strong emphasis on it. Without having seen that myself, I can't give a, you know an exact, definite answer about that. So I'll refrain from doing that kind of speculation. I'm sorry, but if you, when you do it, let me know. We can we learn from you. <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything? Yes. I'm sorry. What was the question? Can you speak a little louder? Uh, the compassion that we can put onto other objects outside of us, or something lower than us, or whatever that produces a certain feeling. Um, I guess is it is when we cut when we cut off that object, um, come back to that feeling itself. Does that is that meta? Um, is that meta? I don't know if I describe the feeling as metta. It's just a feeling that arises from metta. There's a, some distinction there. But um, as for developing metta for a specific object, that's something that you can definitely do. And it's especially useful when you have aversion or hatred towards whatever being you might have. <clears throat> some teachers even suggest that one can start their practice after developing metta for oneself, extending that metta towards a friendly person a, like a noble friend or something like that. And this can kind of jumpstart things, especially when it's, you find it difficult to really get those feelings going because it's very easy to develop, you know, very um, strong, pleasant feelings, giving metta towards a friendly being. Yet at the same time, as we mentioned, we have to avoid getting attached to that being. There has to be this temperament of equanimity there. But in that regard, it's, it can be a very useful way to jumpstart things if you find it difficult to get the, the feelings of metta really going in that regard. So I hope that answered things. Anyone else? Yes? I have a question about greed, anger, and delusion. Okay. Um, in one sense, 
There's a, it's said that there's underlying tendencies to feelings. There's underlying, un, with pleasant feeling, there's the underlying tendency of greed. With um, <coughs> painful feelings, there's the underlying tendency of hatred. With neutral feelings, there's the underlying tendency of ignorance. <coughs> so in that regard, that's true. But I wouldn't say that these things are exclusively dependent on feelings. There's also this idea of the elimination of greed, hatred, and delusion being the very conditions for the attainment of Nibbana. So, you know, these things come up in many different ways, many different contexts, from very gross and um, mundane forms of greed and hatred and delusion, all the way to the most subtle ones, which generally start dealing with the sense of self, the greed for things that arises from appropriating the world, or the hatred that arises from rejecting things from oneself, saying that I don't want that for myself. And so there's all these different levels of these operations of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is why it can be so difficult to really uproot it, because it's kind of like a vine that's growing in various different places and tangling various different ways. So what you say is true, but I'd say it's not the only definition of greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's a very important and very subtle and deep one, one that if we can remove, we've done a great deal right there. Yes? Well, with regards to your context that you brought up, the underlying tendency of neutral feelings is ignorance because we generally are, don't pay attention to those things. And so when we, we generally pay attention mostly to pleasure and pain, and we don't really look very closely at that kind of neutral, hard-to-describe feeling in between. And so it's with that context that it's said to be underlying, that ignorance underlies that because we generally don't investigate that. When we start investigating even neutral feelings, we see that there's this constant um, array of feeling and that it's all changing, all impermanent. And that really adds a new depth to our mindfulness of feeling in that way when we see all feelings, not just plainful and pleasant, the ones that affect us the most. We have time for one more if anyone has anything. Yes. use the object as your thing of meditation? Um, well, you know, we can, be, we can establish mindfulness of anything, anything within the realm of our sense experience. <clears throat> and so there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can just be mindfully aware that a sound arose and then the sound passed away at some point, seeing that it's impermanent and analyzing the underlying conditions between it, you know, depending on the ear and sound there was the rising of ear consciousness. The meaning of those three was contact. With contact, there was a feeling. You felt a certain way about the sound. Probably didn't like it if you're sitting in meditation. And you can look at that feeling and look at what underlies that feeling. This, as we said, just said, the underlying tendency of hatred. And you can recognize that this is just simply rooted in craving and aversion. And hence, that it's something that we should not give fuel to, give credence to. So you can be mindfully aware of whatever pain of a painful feeling that arises and just see that you know this painful feeling is not worth clinging to and by not giving it that fuel by not giving it that attention that so craves it'll generally just go away by itself you just acknowledge it very calmly and very mindfully like that so i hope that helped Okay, so anyway, I think we've gone on long enough, so thank you all for listening and participating, and I hope you have a very successful rest of your retreat. You go ahead, take a short break, and come back for our last meditation of the day. <coughs>